If you're new to our church, maybe new to the Bible, we don't like to presume, like I said last week as well, that people have maybe ever touched a Bible when they come in here. And so we preach heavily, we preach explicitly, we preach the hard texts. We're not shy about these different things that the Bible talks about. We want to define terms and really go in deep and really explore God and explore Christ, explore gospel on a big picture level. But we also want to explain these things and, and teach the Bible and, and approach it as though people are exploring these things for the first time. And this might be a, a specific genre of the Bible, Old Testament wisdom literature or poetry that's uh, maybe you just avoided because it's too hard to read, and I understand that. You're almost justified in, uh, if, if that's your perspective. It's very tricky to read the Song of Solomon and other genres like it because it's poetry and because it's heavily and prophetic in a lot of ways. We ask that big question, what do these things mean? It's not an easy answer a lot of times. Sometimes there are certain passages of the Bible that are a little more accessible, and I understand that. That means something to me immediately. On another level, there are passages and books like this that we just can't make the, at least the initial claim of that right up front. It takes a little bit more time and more digging. So uh, we are going to dig in, though, to Song of Solomon chapter 2 today, verses 8 to 17. Remember, there are two sides to this. And, and again, if you're brand new to this, I'd at least offer this to you. You've been here as a reminder that this is true for a lot of different parts of the Bible, but especially here, this helps you get a grasp of it. There's a human side and a divine side to the Bible. And we, we say that because, that, well, there just is interpretationally. I think that Jesus interprets the Bible this way, the Old Testament himself this way, and, and so we can have an example of this. But also just based on who Christ is. He's the Word of God, and he is both God and man. He's fully God, and he's fully human. He is the ultimate, from John 1 in the New Testament, the ultimate Word of God. And so we can expect that the written Word of God would take on the same shape and same form. There's a divine side and there's this human, maybe at least at first glance anyway, more accessible side, but there's that deeper divine side as well. So on the human side, this just happens to be a very healthy depiction of a relationship. Very healthy. The timing of it, the order of it, the sex that occurs later, the communication, the conflict resolution, the, the way they talk to each other, all of that and more is a very healthy depiction of a relationship and marriage. And so we can, we can access it on that level and say, what guidelines or principles do we learn from God about marriage, about relationships for singles, as you think about who you want to marry in the future, as you want that, which is a good thing. Whatever level you are, whatever your marital status, that's the, that human side of the, uh, this book, but also when the Bible just talks about marriage, there's husbands do this, and wives do this, and together do this, and don't do this, and avoid this. All those things are, are important. On the divine side, though, the bigger side of it, and these relate, they're not just separate orbs. We don't want to make too much of a a dichotomy here, because they do relate and point to each other. On the divine side, remember that God never says in the Bible or in any way insinuates, I want you, church, or any reader, Christian or not, I want you to think about marriage without thinking about me. It never happens. Never says that, never insinuates that. Quite the opposite. I want you to think about marriage and think about me intently as you think about it, because I created it for my purposes. It's not a human-devised invention. People just didn't make it up. I invented it. Right after I made everything out of nothing, I created, I created gender. I created a, a woman and a, a man first and his wife later, and they, and they were married. They had sex. They procreated. They had a friendship. And I made it to demonstrate something to you and to the world, to the church, and to those on the outside looking in, what I'm like. This is crucial. This is the case then, then we don't have the freedom to mess with what marriage should be. Because when you, when you mess with this thing that God is saying, I'm kind of like this, you're messing with God. You, if, we, if we mess with the order of marriage or what sex is or gender issues, what we're doing is we're messing with this image, this, this picture of God that we're getting, supposed to get in marriage as well, along with it. So all of that matters. Some of this will come up today and some in future weeks as well. But if it's true that, that God is saying this to the world, that I am like a loving husband who's dying for his wife. I'm, li I'm like Ulysses in this song, who's doing everything he can to get back to his love. If, if we mess with some of these things in the storyline, which culture has tirelessly done since the dawn of time, we've all participated in that, then, then it's, it's a danger to avoid. And, but, but God speaks into that, speaks truth back into it, saying, no, this is the way it should be. This is the way marriage should be. This is the way relationships, this is the way masculinity and femininity should be to help portray this drama of the gospel in the world that I am really wanting people to partake in. That's what I really want people to understand. Not just that I don't want them just to get married. Some won't. I want them to know me. And marriage helps tell that story. So human and divine side, that's our goal today is to look at both of these things. So principles for marriage, but also 
this love story as a picture of God's love for lost people. That's ultimately what marriage is about, is God being like a husband and lost people being like a wife that he adores deeply and gives himself up for. So have, that both, have both those angles in mind as we read Song of Solomon 2, 8 to 17. Remember, this is a love dialogue, so the whole thing is them talking back and forth to each other. And this is actually all the, the uh, she side, so it's the woman now speaking about her, her uh, groom-to-be, her, her uh, husband-to-be here, and he quotes, she quotes him, so like, she'll actually speak in the middle here, but she's doing the quoting. It's really all of her voice here in verse 8. Let's read it to begin, and I'll come back with some contextual helps here before we dive into the details. Verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. All right, so a little context here to help, and I kind of set it up before, but just to get your bearings here, this is still a time of engagement for the couple. In two weeks, we'll have the wedding. After that's just post-wedding relational dialogue and some conflict and resolution and so forth. We'll get to that in coming weeks, but this is still a time of preparation and engagement for the couple, but here, it pictures poetically a number of obstacles between the two. Got to have that in mind. If you want to just get a good synopsis of what's going on here, and this comes up elsewhere too. This is a good synopsis though of what chapter 2 verses 8 to 17 is getting at poetically. There are obstacles between the man and the woman. So there's distance, there's mountains, there's hills, there's walls, there's windows, there's lattice, and there's foxes in the vineyard that threaten to spoil the vineyard's a picture of their relationship here, that threaten to spoil the relationship. So threats. These aren't, these aren't, uh, this isn't conflict between the two. That comes up later. It's separation, distance, obstacles, mountains, a series of outside threats of some kind. And as they address it, they end up speaking all the more about each other. And the man effectively, kind of like the Ulysses song, but especially as we picture Christ here and this call for men to be obstacle overcomers in general, which I'll come to in just a second, the man is really the one who crosses these great divides. And, and the, the woman receives it, celebrates that her man has come to her rescue, her husband's come to rescue, in this case her fiancé is coming to her rescue and overcoming these obstacles. They both participate, but especially him. But they end up speaking all the more about each other in the process, which in turn tells us more about what love is. And ultimately then, as we've said, about God's love for us. So have that in mind. This is a passage about obstacles uh, that are overcome in a relationship. So, We'll start on the human side, like we have in past weeks, and if you haven't been here for any of this yet, basically what we've done is looked at this human side of the coin first, principles for marriage and relationships, the other side being the divine side, the more important side, which we'll build towards. But you can't help talk about the divine with, when you talk about the human. It's not, you can't you know, separate it that much, and so we'll, we'll weave in some of these divine gospel principles here as we go along as well. So let's talk about relationships uh, to begin. The human side, principles for marriage or just relationships of any kind. I'll talk to singles here, speak to singleness in just a minute. Uh, but uh, marriage, remember the Bible says, is, is to be held up in honor among all in church. And God says this. He says marriage is a very important thing because when you honor marriage, you honor me. I invented it. And when marriage is happening healthily and when you resolve conflict in marriage, it doesn't help it become more healthy. You're honoring a picture of me that I want it to be. And so whether you're single or, or married or not, it's not really the question. The question is, just generally speaking, 
honoring marriages, praying for marriages, working on our marriages to become better and more healthy all the time so that they might portray the right things about Jesus and his gospel. So in a nutshell, a lot going on here, a lot we could say, but I think that we've already kind of seen this. There's one thing I want to say, though, to men, husbands, and I think to men more broadly, I'll come around to that in a second, but husbands in general that is built off of Ephesians 5. You've looked at this in past weeks as well. But the issue is this, that we're seeing portrayed here with the man. Husbands, uh, what this calls us to is, is to be a hero to our wives. Be our wives and be your wives' hero. In other words, initiate love. Initiate love in the way that we're seeing here, in the, uh, portrayed here poetically in Song 2. So you can think about this. It's a great litmus, very convicting as a husband to say this too, but but a great litmus test for our marriages, as we think about this as husbands, does my love for my wife look like leaping over mountains to get to her? Is that a fair portrayal of where we're at right now relationally? Is that, is that, obviously, it's poetry. You can do that literally, I guess, if you want. You can try. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like this is poetic sense to which you're crossing divides. You're dealing with obstacles. When something arises in the relationship, you're taking responsibility to cut its head off and not allow it to trample around in your marriage and and cause more damage than it has to. Is that characteristic of how I love her? It's a great litmus test to think about. So in a culture then, and this is, you know, some of you will think, this is not my experience, some of you will think this is very much my experience, but I think in general, in a culture that really emasculates men and gives them permission all the time to not lead, because who are we to say that men are leaders in a relationship, or we're opening doors for women can be seen as chauvinistic, or we're taking initiative, sometimes sexist, all of that. We need, to, we need to step back here and hear God say, I created gender, I created marriage for a particular purpose, and there are differences that should be celebrated. So we need to hear God say and display in the poem here, but also say, men, it's okay to be a hero to your wives. That's an okay thing. Actually, more than okay, it's a good thing. It's a command that we see in the scriptures. Like the man in the song, and it's based on this idea, too, that love is, this is one of the more important things to know about love biblically and just in general practically as you love others, your spouse or or not. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is an action. Now, feelings come along with love all the time, actions that, that are loving actions all the time, but love biblically, when it's defined, is, think of 1 Corinthians 13 in the New Testament. It says, love is patient, love is kind. Love doesn't boast, doesn't envy. It lays down your, uh, your rights, essentially, and says, it's no longer about me. That's what love is. And in John 15, Jesus says, this is the greatest form of love that someone laid down his life for his friends. So this is how Jesus defines it. This is the greatest form of love is sacrificial love. It's an action. It's an act of service. So it's not primarily and only, though culture might say otherwise, only a feeling that kind of just in in an animalistic sense takes us over. We can't control ourselves. It's very ordered. It's a choice. Feelings, of course, infatuation and not being able to eat because you're so in love with this person that you want to move towards and and ask out or whatever it is. Uh, That comes along with it, for sure. Feelings come along with it, but it's primarily, biblically speaking, as God says, it's it's defined. Or it's, it's an action. Defined as an action. So, based on that, we think about husbands being heroes in the spirit of song two, and also Ephesians 5.25 up there, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's actually not a command that wives give, interestingly enough, which wives, that's great as well. If you're loving your husband in a Christ-like manner, praise God, that's great, do that. But it's interesting, though, in Ephesians 5, that husbands get this particular call to lay down their lives for, uh, for their wives. And to love by giving themselves over and say, it's not about me anymore. Laying themselves down, like Christ did for us. So loving, leading, loving, having responsibility, initiating, being that strong character in the marriage, but doing that in a, in a it's not about me anymore kind of way, in a Christ-like way. Serving, loving, laying down the life and so forth. So based on all of that, when we go back to song two here, I think one of the calls we get as husbands is, do not leave it to your wife to come to your rescue or the marriage's rescue. When there are threats and obstacles in our relationship, again, do we seek out to, to cut the heads off of those things or let them trample around our home kind of unchecked, doing damage? Do we take responsibility? So in the spirit 
of how that you would, I hope you would, but in how you jump out of your bed to go address the sound of someone breaking in your house at night to protect your wife. That's, hope that's clear. It's one of those things, by the way, that culture hasn't quite touched yet. You know, a very egalitarianized culture, but I think that's one where most people would say, it's probably wrong for the guy to say, kind of nudge the wife and say, go check out that noise, you know, down there. Here's the bat. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come down there if there's more than one, you know, burglar or something. Wrong, right? We'd say to the guy, that's wrong to do. Right? I, think, I think most people, it's just wrong to do. Get out of bed and go address the sound, the sound, right? Or whatever it is. So in the spirit of how you want to protect your wife in that way, apply that to other areas of your marriage as well. Do we, I think, we should be prompted with, do we initiate prayer? Do we initiate sex? Do we initiate conversation? And look at, look at verse 8 says here too. Verse 8, remember, starts with, Ah, the voice of my beloved. So it's, it's this picture of a wife adoring the voice of her husband-to-be. Your voice, husbands, is sweet to your wives. It's sweet to her. I was talking to Letha about this. We were trying to figure out if this is the case maybe more for wives than it is for husbands because I love hearing my wife's voice. It's sweet, it's sweet to me as well, but we were thinking how there might be a particular sense to which a wife longs for uh, her husband's voice just to hear him a bit more than maybe a husband does. And we think that's the case because if we apply the gospel to this and this divine side, Think about what the church does to Christ all the time. Uh, and think about what the Bible says about the church underneath the voice of God and how much we adore hearing from him, how God speaks and, and loves with communication and how the church says, ah, oh, the voice of God, the voice of my Savior, the voice of Christ. It's sweet, sweet words to us. And I think in a dramatized way in a marriage, it's going to play out that way. Wives are going to love to hear from their husbands. And if we rob our wives of that, gentlemen, husbands, uh, we are not only not displaying the gospel, but we're robbing her of an opportunity to just find joy and, and to find more fulfillment in our relationship. So speak to her. Talk. It's such a simple thing, but if you've been married more than a day, it's just the things that kind of just fall by the wayside sometimes. You've got to talk. Talk to her. Enter in. Move towards her emotionally and let your voice be a sweet thing to her. Obviously, our voices can tear down as well. Our words can, but our voices, that's a good question too, our voice is a sweet thing and a comforting thing to to our wives. So in general, though, a lot we can say here, but this is a big picture observations. In general, the song here is showing us a picture of a man crossing divides to get to his fiance, physically and emotionally. He goes to her and she celebrates his arrival and his words. Great picture of marriage right there in a nutshell. You're kind of just learning about marriage. Some of your, some of your engaged, it's great. A man moving, crossing divides to be with, moving towards his wife, and the wife celebrated his arrival uh, with his words. It's kind of like the anti-man cave verse here, you know, sort, sort of speaking. Those are, and those are great. You got your man cave kind of thing, whatever you got going on in your house. That's great. Have that, but don't over have that. Uh, that, that is the, that's the, the opposite. The antithesis of what's going on here is saying it's not about retreat. It's about movement towards a, um, a husband moving towards his, his wife. So husbands, we're wired for this. Our sin gives us the propensity to not do it, to do the opposite. But Christ gives us the example and, and more importantly, the power to love in, in a new way. And by the way, wives, if your husband's not doing this and, and he won't ever do it perfectly, it's not the point, but pray for him and invite him to do this. That's a great thing. Aletha does this to me a lot too and I think if you, if you invite your husband to do this rather than just harbor that bitterness or just try to kind of step out and do what he should be doing yourself and never invite him to do it, uh, it's, it's not only going to give him permission to almost not do it, but it's going to almost kind of further emasculate him and, and not, not give him that, this is what it means to be a man kind of thing in the marriage. So gently invite him to that. Ask him to lead. Ask him to take initiative, to be responsible, uh, to lead out on things that you want him to, to lead out on. But just a sidebar there. Uh, si single men. Uh, a lot of things we could say here, but just a couple of things that I think play off this idea of movement uh, towards women. This may be super obvious, but I'm just going to say it <laughs> anyway. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Single men, uh, you should ask a woman out. You, you should do that. Uh, not necessarily today, unless you want to. That's great. But I mean, just in general, that the principle of moving towards, it's okay to pursue women. And I think our culture, I think, celebrates that on, one, on, the, on the one side of things, but I think I've also just, maybe a lot of you have too, since this movement towards it should just kind of happen or it's okay if you meet in the middle or, um, you know, if you're sitting here and you're the, 
woman in a dating relationship and you asked your now boyfriend out, that's not sinful or, or bad or wrong necessarily, but what it can be a sign of, and what this encouragement I think is giving us in song two and elsewhere is, men, take initiative. I think there's, some, there's a gospel a masculine principle there, I think, that tells us, that reminds the people watching that, that God moved towards us. This is why it's so important. When it's time to propose, men, you should eventually propose. And maybe that sounds old-fashioned, and it actually it is. It's as old as time itself, because God created it this way in the very beginning. So in that sense, it's a good way, good sense of the word. But the Christian approach is to say, men initiate love because God initiates with us. That's the relationship. Men initiate love because God has initiated love with us. That's the, Bible, that's the Bible's relationship between those things are connected biblically. And not that you can't have any sense of this over here if a woman initiates love, but you do lose some of it because God has created gender to be different. And if a man's not initiating love, if he's lazy, if he's being dragged into marriage, if he's not, if he needs to just butt kicked all the time into just loving, it's, it's a picture of God being that way. It's a picture of God being lazy. It's a picture of God not wanting to love us, not doing all the work to save. That's what's pictured when, when men step back and when we step back, single, married, whatever the case, and when we are, when we are passive. I remember, uh, though, just to be clear, it's easy when you preach to kind of sound like you're this great example. So I just want to be clear. I have just, you can talk to Aletha. She'll give you 100 examples of my failure in this area. But um, one, one thing that Aletha would say um, about what I, before we were dating, that I just couldn't help but do, this kind of sounds creepy, but it's, uh, it, it relates to this peering through the lattice idea. I remember, I know, let me explain, let me explain that. Um, not of her apartment or anything, but um, I remember being around Aletha and I just couldn't help but look at her. I just, I'd stare at her until she'd look at me and I just want to lock eyes with her and make her feel uncomfortable. I know it's kind of crazy, but I just, I couldn't help it. And I didn't, I didn't have a history of doing that with any other women. I didn't, I just look, I just look at her. She's in my community group back at our old church and came to these different prayer meetings I was a part of, and I just stare at her. And I, I just wanted her to know that I really, really, really liked her. And I could have gone one or two ways, I guess. You know, could have gone really bad and could have, uh, or it could have gone well. It did go well. She said yes later on, but, um, but it could have gone. You know, but, I, but either way, it's like the point is, point is initiate. Point is move towards. The point is it's okay to do. It's a really good thing to want marriage. You know, we talk in this series a lot about wanting more contentment in Christ more than marriage, and I think that's a good thing. Obviously, it's a good thing. It's not wrong to want to be married. It's not wrong to want to be single either. Wanting marriage is a good thing, and I think men to take that initiative, it's, this is what it does. It, 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 it sets a pattern for your relationship that's going to build health into it later on. If you're too passive, men, in the early stages, it's going to, be, it's going to that much more be a temptation to be a pattern later on to just fall back and say, it's, well, it's not going to work that hard. It's not really about me. It's where it's about me in the middle, right? So why would I step out and lead? Because aren't we about kind of equality here? So if you have those types of ideas, it's going to, it's going to, make, it's going to invite passivity, which men, all, we already struggle with. We already wrestle with passivity. It's already hard to talk. It's already easy to withdraw and not communicate, not deal with issues in our marriage, like the walls and the foxes and all these things in song too. So to, to, have, this, to have Christ in our out in front as an example in power and say, how did he love as the ultimate husband? And to embody that in marriage is, is a wonderful thing. One more thing here. Single women, a uh, couple things here for you. In general, if, if you're single, know someone else is single, is a woman, if you want to encourage her with this, that'd be great too. But the encouragement here is don't settle for less. Don't look for perfection, but look for this. This is one of the, there's a lot of things we could say about things to look for in a future husband. This is one of the greatest things right here. Look for a man who initiates with you. Look for a man who's responsible. Look for a man who, who moves from someplace, and I'm speaking kind of literally, but also kind of metaphorically here, moves across the room or moves across the metaphorical divide, emotional divide, or whatever it is, to go to you and, and to want to solve problems and to comfort you. Uh, obstacles in your life between you and God or between you and your boss or th that you have between each other, he, he's assertive. And he, and he takes responsibility. Responsibility is one of the most masculine terms, uh, biblically speaking, that I can give, the Bible can give us, God can give us, because God is the ultimate responsible one for our salvation. And so men, be responsible. So single women, look for that. Not perfection, 
But look for that pattern uh, in, in a man. Uh, and obviously, spiritual things to a man who loves Jesus and, and all of that. I don't want to, you know, shush that, obviously. But since we're on the topic here of initiation, men being heroes, uh, it's a great, great, great thing to look for. Not in a perfect way, but an intentional way, in a pattern way, uh, nonetheless. Okay, well, with, that, with all that said, let's move on to the divine side. <clears throat> the human side, principles for marriage, we'll kind of seep into this on the divine side as well. In fact, I've already talked about it a little bit here, but the divine side, again, is a picture here. How is this, here's the question, how is this poem a picture, a prophetic, anticipatory picture of Christ's love for the church, which, again, biblically, it always is. If you're thinking, well, how are we, why are we reading this into the poem? It's not what it's trying to say. It's not trying to say Jesus. Remember, if you step back and say, how does God read marriage elsewhere? He always reads Jesus into it. It's always about God. It's always about God pursuing the prostitute or his, just his love being lost people like this or, or Christ loving the church like we just read. So it's always the case. And so this, this, not just, this is always true experience too, but if this is in the Bible, how much more true uh, and how much more permission, uh, so to speak, should we have to read it this way. So Christ's love for the church. And just going back to the first few words, which I talked about on the human side, let's talk about it though on the divine side. This is wonderful. Because we've gleaned this implicitly so far in this series, but not explicitly. We've seen couple that want to talk to each other. It's a really sign of health in a marriage when they want to talk. But we've also seen uh, here in the first few verses of verse 8, the woman just saying, the voice of my beloved. It's a good thing. Not like, ah, covered her ears. This is like, no, the voice of my beloved. I want to, I want to hear him. On the human side, it's one thing. On the spiritual side, if this is a picture of the church's love for Christ, and there's repetition here, by the way, too. Before I get there, I uh, just, just, underline this or, or make a note of this if you'd like to take notes in your Bible of how repetitious this is in the song. It is a literary device in the Bible. When God repeats things, he wants us to know that God is, in this case, he's a God of words. He's a God with a voice. You know, when someone talks to us lovingly, especially in the marriage context, we'd think love. Even if it's a hard conversation, we'd think love because passivity is the opposite of love. I, just I don't give a rip is the opposite of love. So, on this level, God speaking to us and speaking the way he does to us through his son is a picture of, of love as well. But in any case, going back to verse 8, the voice of my beloved. This is a reminder that the church knows and adores the voice of God. The church knows and adores the voice of their shepherd. Jesus' sheep know and adore the voice of their true shepherd, which is, which is again, is Christ. John 10 picks up on this in the New Testament. This is Jesus speaking. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So the key here is, again, knowing, and this is, a, this is the voice language here being used, different book, different testament, but same thematic idea, God's people knowing and adoring his voice and knowing, what, and knowing it so well that you know what it isn't. We so we know, Christians should know, the voice of, of the Savior, the voice of the gospel, how he spoke grace and peace and salvation and forgiveness over us through a bloody cross. Know it so well that we can, we can also know what half-truths are and what, what false doctrines are, what the voices of thieves and hired hands are as well. In fact, it's one of the... It's one of the uh, traits in the, in the New Testament of an elder or an overseer or a pastor, it says, Paul says to his disciple Timothy, if someone's going to lead in the church, they should know what good doctrine is, but also what false doctrine is so they can rebuke it and call it out and say, untrue. This is true, but this is false. It's a lie. And so leaders should, all Christians should, should know this and be growing in this throughout our lives, but for, for people to lead, we should especially especially know this. But just to widen back and say this is the key for every, every Christian, knowing and rejoicing in the voice of Christ and it being indicative of our relationship with him, just communication. So one question we can ask here then too with, you know, with our, our Bibles in hand is, um, is this verse, the, the voice of my beloved, is, is that verse, that poetic idea or picture indicative of what I think about the Bible? When you pick up your Bible, do you think, oh, 
the voice of my God, I can't wait to dig in. Is, is, that, is, that, is this indicative of your, of your relationship with God on a broad level, but specifically as you hear from him? This is how we hear. Don't go and lie on your back on your couch and nap and hope that he speaks to you in a dream. He probably won't. If he does, great. But it's not primarily the way he speaks. He's given us a very long book full of genre, full of intrigue, full of characters, full of events, full of prepositional truth that all in one way or another tell us about him. And we need, this is how we hear him. So verse 8 then is this picture of a Christian reading their Bible and saying, oh, the voice of my Savior. There's nothing like it. It's the sweetest of words. So is that the case? And it's kind of like, you know, when we haven't spoken with our spouse or fiance or a significant other for a period of time, let's say they're out of town for a week, what do you think when they call you on the phone or when they walk in the door and start speaking to you? What's the first thing you think? It's so good to hear your voice, right? It's the first thing you think. And if marriage is a picture of our relationship with God, it should be the same there too. And how much more? Should we say, when it's been long especially, but no matter how long, oh, it's so good to hear the voice of my, my Savior, my Christ. And experientially, I'm guessing every Christian in the room can have a, has a story in mind, at least maybe even very recently, of how that was especially true. How the Word of God nourished your soul and, conv- and convicted and drew you away from the old and brought you to the new. And how it was sweet. Maybe a probing thing, but a very, very good, encouraging, joy-giving thing. So, how much more than, again, should this be true with, with Christ? On the marital level, but especially on the capital M, <clears throat> divine marital level. So then we can ask, well, what does he say? This is the case, and some of you might be thinking, no, it's just not, if you're honest with yourself, that's not true. And all of us can say that. And none, none of us have had this. We've all had days, weeks, months, seasons of life where it's just not what we think about the Bible. It's not how we hear from, we're in a pattern of not hearing from God the right way. And so the point is not to, you know, just, feel so bad about ourselves that we're paralyzed, but to move away from that into a place of really listening from God uh, scripturally and and growing in that and knowing what he says about himself. So if he is saying something to us, we got to know what that is. He talks about himself a lot. You know, for for humans, we would say, oh, arrogance, but not with God. Because God, when God is saying, this is what I'm like, this is what I'm not like, this is what you are like and and not like, this is how much I love you, this is what I'm going to do for you on on a cross three days from now, this is what communion means, how, whatever it is. He's saying something to edify and to encourage and, and to speak into our life to, to rise us up from the old into, into the new. So a lot we could say about what he does say. We could really, the whole book is, is the word of Christ, essentially. We could be here, we could be here all week. Uh, but since we're in the Song of Solomon, let's look at this through the lens of the Song of Solomon. How does Jesus' words and truths and gospel whispered in Song 2 8 to 17. Well, if he's the man here, and he is, he's the ultimate Solomon, the ultimate king, the ultimate man, husband-to-be of, of song two, then he says to us, among other things, verses 10 to 12. He says this to us. Arise, my love, my church, my beautiful one, come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on earth, the time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land that awesome? I mean, it's cryptic. It's like, what did you just say? On the other side of things, it's kind of like, wow, it's amazing that if that's the voice of God speaking over us, maybe you never heard from God that way or thought that God would speak to you in such capacity. He does. It's in his word. These are the kinds of things that he says to us here poetically and more explicitly elsewhere, which I'll get to in just a second. But if we ask this kind of back up and ask, well, what's going on here? What kind of imagery is being employed? A lot of imagery here being used, but in one way or another, they all center on things rising up from the ground. Did you guys notice that? They all center on things rising up from, from the, the earth. It's springtime, winter is past, which I love that we're in, in February in Minnesota and there's, the winter is past, and that's a gospel right there. And there's it's, you know, Christ on a cross, but a close second is winter. Winter is past, right? I, my soul is full, let's just go home. But anyway, you know, it's springtime, winter is past, flowers are growing Life's coming back again, and the woman herself, you see, is invited to arise and to go away with him, which poetically, all of these things are a nod in one way or another to the greater theological motif of resurrection. And I think, uh, just a comparison list here to all these things on the left, which I just talked about, are uh, poetic, prophetic images of a resurrection used elsewhere. And one of them, uh, by the way, as well, just in passing, I'll mention it, 
Jesus' resurrection is referred to in agrarian forms in the, in the New Testament too. So Jesus is called the first fruits of resurrection. And, and, the har- and, and harvest is an agrarian metaphor for people being saved and brought in uh, to the church as well. So a lot of agrarian metaphor is used elsewhere, even in the New Testament, to refer to resurrection. So we all the more know that these are, God is intending all things to really be about him and his gospel. All the more in song two here are pictures of, in a parallelistic kind of repetitive way, a picture of resurrection. So as we look elsewhere then in the New Testament for more nods to this, we see in Luke seven fourteen this idea of arising again, and this time it's from the mouth of Christ himself. This is kind of mid-story here, and Luke is uh, commenting, uh, one of the gospel writers, but he's at a funeral, and a woman just lost her son. And uh, it, in mid-story it says, when the Lord saw her, this woman who's grieving and mourning, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Guys, again, think, this is God speaking this to people. This is God speaking this to you and me right now as well. Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. So touch this stand that the casket is on. The bears stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, and here's the word again, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. These are the things that God does. These are as demonstrations of power and grace. These are things he also speaks into her life in a broader sense when he says, get up away from death and come to me. Great synopsis here of what Jesus just says to us over and over again in the New Testament. Arise, come away, be with me. Come away from the old and into the new. Come away from your sin. Come away from death. Come away from your old self. Come away from Satan. Come away from the winter. Come away from the dead ground. Come away from a time of mourning. Right? Song 2, we're seeing here also in Luke 7, 14. To hear the Lord call us away from those things is sweet. You know, winter is gone essentially means death is no more. Singing is come means the morning's past. Arise means enter into new life. Be saved from your sin. Come away means come away. But it would be a different poem, wouldn't it, if, if at this point, at this juncture in the story, the man said, arise, my love, and go work in the vineyard. Go, go work your knuckles to the bone. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not, real, that's not what love is. It's not like what would happen, Right? In the same way, this is what God is saying. Look at the goal of your salvation is. And so many Christians, at times, we're so tempted into this and live in this so frequently. We've got to move away from this. The goal is Jesus. The goal is not doing. The goal is not work. It's belief. It's rest. He's so bent on this in the Gospels, you guys. All over, Old and New Testament, to show how much doing fails. We take a nosedive into the ground at 100 miles an hour when we try to work our way to to God. But if if God is initiator, if God is mountain leaper, if God is the one who says, arise, come away from death, if God is the speaker, the initiator, and he's the one that says, just come away and be with me, well, then we have a much better picture of what salvation is, but the goal of our salvation is as well. If you are not with him, is that indicative of your spirituality? Are you with him? Do you know his voice? Do you love him and adore him? If not, Maybe you haven't really understood the gospel that well at all. So think about that. Let that really check your heart. Let that be a gut check. Do you understand what he's done for you? Do you understand his voice? Do you love the Bible? Is your Christian spirituality about dreams and subjectivity and getting a whisper of God in creation and that's it? Lacking, lacking. You'll never hear the voice of God in the right way if you do that, ever. You've got to know the scriptures. You've got to know how God speaks to us explicitly here. He said quite a bit. And they all revolve around this idea of love. Loving the lost, loving the dead, having compassion on dead people and those who mourn and saying, I'm going to enter into this and bring happiness and joy. The way I'm going to do it is by sending my son to, be, to, to die on a cross for sins. So great synopsis here, and we could look at a lot of things, but going back to song two, a synopsis of how he speaks, how he speaks grace and gospel over us, saying arise, resurrect, come into new life, and it's all by grace, not by what we do, it's completely by grace. We see it here, we see it in the New Testament, we see it elsewhere, completely by grace that God saves, not by our works. That is really the core message of Song of Solomon. 
So the quality then, and I'll end with this before the next section here, the, the quality of our relationship with God is directly connected to how much we hear and enjoy hearing from God and His Son Christ through the Bible. There is no exception. All right. How else do we hear him speak over us? Uh, It's one more thing. A lot we could say in this uh, segment. A lot of good stuff. But one other cool thing he does is, is he's quoting the man. She's quoting the man here again. But a few verses down, he says, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So remember last week, if you guys were here, uh, we, we talked, and we'll do this more in the series before it's over, we looked at this idea of contrast, how something in song two is, is, is a positive spin on this, this relational uh, thing we have with God, but there's contrast in that we look elsewhere in the Bible and we see, well, that, that wasn't possible before. In our sin, it's just not possible. What changed between what it says elsewhere and what is happening here. So we're going to do that one more time here today, and we're going to see this. We're going to look at Exodus 33, earlier in the Old Testament, story of Moses and Israel in the desert after they leave Egypt, uh, for a little bit of context there. But in Exodus 33, Moses is on the mount with God, and they have this very interesting exchange. I mean, look at what's said here. Moses wants to see God. And so in verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my name, the Lord. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and where my glory passes by you, I'll put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but again, my face shall not be seen. So really interesting, right? It's like, what's going on there? You can see my back, just a little bit of my, you know, my, my back or whatever, but not my face. Because people, no, you can't, man can't see me and live. So Moses gets to see this kind of partial glory in the Old Testament, but not full glory, or not the face, not the full face of God. So in short, this is true. In general, still today, we cannot see God and live. Too much sin too much death, too, too much impurity, too much lack of holiness with us, and too much holiness in him. We're too much an enemy of his. So then the question becomes, how then can song two be true? Because note that, you guys know it's a similar language used uh, in the passages, how it, there, there's face language being used in both, but the exact phrase cleft of the rock is used uh, in, in both passages. So in, in the bottom passage, Moses was placed in the cleft of a rock. Can't see the face of God. But in Song 2, poetically, we have in the cleft of a rock, this man coming and looking right in the face of, of his lover and, and, and complimenting her and adoring her and speaking love and grace over her, which is ultimately a picture of God to lost people. So which is it? Right? It's like contradiction, right? Raise the red flag and say, can't coexist in the scriptures. What happens between the former and the latter. Exodus to song two. How can that be true? And the only answer is Christ. When sin and holiness are resolved, we can approach him again. We can see his face, or better yet, he can approach us. I mean, even in the New Testament, when God becomes a human being, he's literally looking at lost, broken people. He's touching lepers and they're becoming clean. He's holding hands. He's, he's touching these stands for caskets, and, and the reverse of, of the curse is kind of just happening. People are coming to life. He's having compassion. He's talking. So even just God becoming a human being, it, it tells us that he's beginning to bridge this can't-see-my-face-can't-be-where-I-am gap. But then, of course, until he goes to the cross, it's not full. It's only on a bloody cross among criminals 2,000 years ago where Jesus dies for our sin, takes away his wrath, takes away punishment, takes away debt, takes away all of that obstacle. Remember, this, remember what today is about in song two? It's about obstacles being overcome. And, and men, can, we can do that, husbands, for our wives. But oh, how God has done that for you and me. Oh, how he's done that. Much more than you'll ever realize the rest of your life. He has overcome such an obstacle to be with you. He's wanted to. In love, it's prompted him to these ends. He's climbed the biggest wall, left over the biggest of mountains, 
run through the biggest of chasms and, and gotten through those windows and lattice. He's shushed away the foxes who are doing damage in our relationship, and he's died uh, for our sins where we should have. So that, in the New Testament, things like this can be said. In 2 Corinthians 4, For God said, who said, Let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, in Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then in Revelation 22, 4, um, at the very end of the Bible, it says about the church, they will see his face. So see, one of the things the Bible is doing is it's, there's, there's many different threads or motifs that it ties together into a beautiful biblical theological huge rope. But this was one of them. Saw God's face in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, expelled from the garden, can't see his face, maybe his back a little bit, but can't be where he is or we die to now the cross happening, Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, and us spitting in his face in the process. But here at the end, again, because of what he's done in the world, because of the obstacles he's overcome in love, we again will look at his face. See, that's where we're headed, guys. It's not you, a hundred Ferraris, and, and, and a bunch of whatever you want. It's, God is not saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. Oh, heaven's going to be great. No, your, your reward is God. Your reward is Jesus. We get, to, we get him again. And in his face, we'll have no more questions. He'll be our answer. We'll just be with him. There'll be no more angst, no more mountains, no more lattice, no more windows, no more foxes, no more sin, no more death, no more winter, no more dead ground. Just life. And so, see, even the, the, the seasons can portray this, which is awesome. In Minnesota, we have a distinct four, well, yeah, four seasons, I guess. Maybe kind of two, but four seasons where you have things die. And they come back to life. Perennials die in the ground. I mean, literally, they're dead. And they come back to life, and they, they bloom. And they're be- These things are, me- God made this. These things are poetically, but literally as well as we see them. We're, we're meant to think, look at what God's doing in the world cyclically. Things die and come back to life. He's the God of resurrection. And the spring is coming that will never end. It's coming. It's not here yet, and we see that because summers and falls come and things die again. Winters keep coming back. But there is an ultimate spring that's coming. And this is the Christian hope. And it's wrapped up in God's love for overly wintered, dead, smelly, eyes not like doves but full of adultery, uh, sin, uh, can't see his face. He has love for us. He's, he's crossing us, moving towards us in that ultimate husband-like way. So where then we can say that God says to us here that in his son, you no longer have to be afraid, nor do you have to settle for seeing my back. I have taken your sin away so that now you can see my face and I can see yours. And as I said in the beginning, your face is lovely for I have made you and you are mine. And so as we wrap this up then, uh, three things to summarize. The first is, adore his voice. Adore it. Listen to him. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian who doesn't love to hear the voice of his Savior. Indeed, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they can distinguish it from the hired's hands. Secondly, arise and rest with him. Rest in God's love and go away to be with him. In other words, he's the goal of your salvation, not laws or ordinances. It's not what Song 2 says. It's not what you're called away to. You're called away to him, not to more doing, not to more law or ordinance. But he saves you. So don't take gospel truth for granted. You would have been kept away from seeing God's face forever if he didn't become a man and die in your place. Don't take it for granted. Love it. Know it better. This is truth. Do you believe that? Does it it resonate in your mind and heart today? Sing about it. Take communion in light of it. Hear it afresh. Talk to your spouse and your kids and your friends about it. Make it the mantra of, of your life. And then again, third, embody this truth and preach it to your spouses, to a lost world, present a Christ to them who is in this way a lover, an initiator, an obstacle overcomer, and one who loves with words. And I think this is a general thing for all, across gender, across the single married divide as well, whatever the case is, whatever your status is, but a special call to Christians because we, we know the voice of our Savior, we know this type of love, but a more special call to Christian husbands who have the particular call to love in a radical kind of giving up themselves sort of way. So men, husbands, uh, single men as well as you think about your future, but 
Husbands in the room, love this way. This is what you're created for. This is, this is the story you can tell in your marriage to a dead and dying world if you love your wife with this type of, I want to rescue you. I want to love you. I want to talk to you. I want to initiate spiritually with you and otherwise. If you're doing that, you're t- you're, you, you are telling the world a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you don't, you, you rob the situation of a gospel-dramatized thing. You, you, rob the, you rob the situation of people being able to see the right thing about their God. And if it's too twisted, I mean, here's the crazy thing. If it's too twisted and too much uh, men being lazy, then really what's pictured is the church saving Christ. If a wife has to lead too much in the home because the husband's too lazy, what's being pictured there is a reversal of gospel truth. The church initiating with God. Have we done that? No. The opposite. And so if it's too much abuse, we can actually go so far as to demonstrate something that's just not true and people wrestle enough with God being passive. We think too, we already, our starting point, the world's starting point for God is does he even, even exist? And if he is there, a billion miles away and doesn't care. And so if a husband lives that way, you're reinforcing that idea of God into their lives. But we have to preach the opposite and we have to demonstrate the opposite men, husbands, but by living differently with our wives and publicly at that so people can see publicly little pictures of us dying and our kids. Man, our kids seeing that. And, and growing up so that they, they, they hear about this type of God and then think, well, cons- it's consistent. It's consistent. My dad wasn't perfect, but that's how we love my, my mom. So it's not oil and water. And you, I'm telling you guys, I deal with this stuff all the time where people cannot cross that divide because they just haven't seen it in a dad. They haven't seen it. And so you're, you're presenting this type of fatherly, husband-like love uh, in, in the gospel, and it's just so foreign that they just don't have a category. And, it's, and if, you, if you can knock out that chasm by the way you love your wife, man, you're doing your kids a favor. And, uh, and just people around you too, your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, the singles around you are looking for a model of marriage too to build on when they get married someday as well. So, so do that. Preach and embody, rejoice and rest in those truths, but preach and embody them as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace today in the gospel of Christ to the lens of song too. Thank you, Father, for again reminding us how much you love and in what way you love and what we should think about when we think about you, being a God who leaps over mountains in love to be with us. And a whole how prone we are to view you as a God who sits down in a chair behind the mountain, unapproachable and unwilling to come to us. But that's not who you are. It's a lie. You are full of love. You are full of truth. You're full of grace and mercy, full of words of love for us. You demonstrated that fully on a cross 2,000 years ago. So thank you for that. Help us to respond in joy and thanksgiving, arising up out of whatever state we walked in here with, kind of baggage that we came in with, into a new place of adoring your voice, listening to your gospel, and responding to it afresh. That's Christianity. So bless us now as we respond here in song and as we leave. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.